Welcome to the Fong Vo Show. Now let's go. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Fong Vo Show. Today we have a special series, which is the uh, Bay Area Business Talk. That is a segment within the Fong Vo Show where I bring in um, Bay Area entrepreneurs, people who have experienced a lot of business in their career, but also people who have gone through the trenches. You know, it's not like they're starting off. They, they have been in business for many years and have learned a lot of things that you can learn from. And so I have two amazing guests. I got Steve and I also got Jonathan. And so, hey, say, say hello, guys. Awesome. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. We're excited. Yeah. And you know what's really funny? We were talking uh, before and turns out Steve and Jonathan don't even don't know each other before this, but they live in the same neighborhood in Danville, which is crazy. Like, like a 10 minute walk from each other. Wow. That is nuts. Maybe not. You got to get out of the bubble, man. Actually, do you guys have fires over there? Do you guys have smoke? Uh, not not us. No, it's crystal okay. clear here. It's oh, air quality is nice. 25 today. It's perfect. Okay, so I'm in Sacramento yeah. right now, and it's like looking like you know really hazy oh, in yeah. the sun. Sacramento. <laughs> oh yeah, unhealthy air in Sacramento. Oh yeah. No, but right near us actually looks fairly like what's behind me here. So for anyone wow. uh, anyone watching who's not from here, these green spaces actually do exist all around the Bay Area. It's probably one of the things I like most about living here is this is about a half mile from my house, and, and I'm only about 30 minutes outside of San Francisco and Oakland. So mm-hmm. uh, pretty amazing to have the contrast so close to each other. Yeah, that's amazing. That's- it looked like it looked like to me at first one of those stock images that Zoom yeah. provides you, you know. Nope, nope. <laughs> t- did it on my phone. Yep, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing how um, technology, even the phone. I mean, some phones are better than just the cameras we had back in the day, you know, <laughs> the, the quality. But um, absolutely, absolutely. So let's go around. Let's just kind of share a couple minutes about your background, and I want to hear everything. You know, I want to hear just kind of like what what kind of kid were you? Um, you know, how did you kind of get into the business? of what you're doing right now, what's your professional background, all of that. So, um, Jonathan, let's start with you and then, oh, actually, no, uh, no, we're going with Steve first. Steve, yeah, let's I'll start, start with, with Steve. <laughs> I, I just, let me just say before he, before he gets in, because again, about a minute ago, he mentioned that he had a military experience. So let me just say thank you, sir, for your service. Um, absolutely, absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Steve. It was a vast experience. So yeah, uh, my name is Steve. Uh, I'm I'm a varied background. I'm one of the anomalies here in North America. During the uh, during the fifties, when I was born, there were no mixed race people, mm-hmm. and let alone a mixed race marriage. Okay, mm-hmm. so my mom is Chinese and French. Wow. My my father's pure Japanese, and Japanese and Chinese at the, the during those times did not mix. No, it was against the law, basically. So they had this sort of Romeo-Juliet kind of relationship at the very beginning. And uh, so I was born originally in New York City. Uh, I grew up in a sort of a latchkey house. My mom was a professional. She ran an advertising and marketing agency. and My dad was in the military. Uh, so my background uh, started off uh, you know, working in, 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 and going to school <clears throat> in New York City. And because uh, I was you know, a latchkey kid, <clears throat> And I had to take care of myself. So I kind of grew up on the streets a little bit. You know, when I was young, people were hustling me for my lunch money. So at the end of the day, after being six or seven years old, you get pretty tough. I mean, you, know, you could see it coming. So it, growing up in New York City until I was about 14, 
uh, from that point on, I was getting in a lot of trouble. I actually ended up in juvenile hall for all kinds of stupid things because I was associating with street people. <clears throat> so my parents said, well, we don't want you to end up in jail or dead by the time you're 21, so we better move. So we moved out to California and moved out to Sacramento area where my mom started her advertising agency. And uh, I went to school there, elementary school, high school, et cetera. And my dad was still in the military. Uh, from that point on, I was working. Uh, I learned about business because I had to learn about the family business. And you know how the family business in, in our family, uh, it's all learned about learning how to eventually run the entire organization. And my mother had an advertising and marketing agency right here in Sacramento. And on top of that, we dealt with uh, political advertising as well as market product advertising. So I started at an early age about um, how business worked. I started emptying garbage cans, sharpening pencils, cleaning up the uh, art the, the, the room. And then, then when I was able to figure some of that stuff, my mom says, well, would you like to try your hand at doing what's called a paste-up? A paste-up is what you used to use for print media back in the days. Everything was done manually. Uh, so I learned, I learned the ropes of how to run an advertising agency, including all the technologies that were used to bring things to market, including, and at that time it was radio, television, and, and uh, print. So I learned all those disciplines. Every summer I would spend my apprentice learning how to do typesetting or photography or printing or marketing, all the tools that I needed to do to be able to eventually become a CEO of a large advertising agency. Was, was basically in those domains. And as I grew up, uh, I was very much in sports, but I was also very much into the scouting side. And I do have a father who was an engineer. My father was the one that helped create night vision in the military. You're familiar with night vision. You see it everywhere now. It's everywhere. But back in the days, mm -hmm. night vision did not exist. So he was on the team that helped develop that. And so my, my, my background in the area of interest was really in the area of science because I was already doing artwork and design. I've been doing that for many years. I have also an analytical mind, so because I, I wanted to become a doctor, uh, uh, like my grandfather was a doctor. So I wanted to be able to understand those domains. And as I learned more about technology, part of the science things that I got access to were things that none of the kids in our, uh, our high school ever got access to because my dad was in the military, especially in night vision and reconnaissance, electronics command. So my, my science fair project, it wasn't a volcano with uh, – with, uh, with baking soda and things splurting out, I actually built the first hologram using an argon laser. So I had wow. that as my science fair project. And I won the science fair project hands down. Actually, it was, it was written up in the, in the state of California for youth uh, developing new technologies. So I was fascinated about technologies. And my studies then led me to the areas of I'm very interested in math. Uh, mm -hmm. I like calculus. I like engineering. I wanted to want to know how those things work. Because I remember when I was five years old, I was in my dad's dark room and I started dismantling everything he had in his dark room to see how they worked. Mm. I got in trouble, of course. Mm. I couldn't put anything back together. Mm -hmm. So, so as my as my career progressed, um, during the process of the of youth, I was involved in scouting, and the scouting troop that was involved with my father and his team were part of the four four two, which has a legacy. If you don't know that, after the internment camps in the United States, many of the Japanese American wanted to prove their loyalty to the American. Mm -hmm. uh, to America, which is giving them these wonderful opportunities, American dream and everything. So they volunteered to fight in World War II uh, against the Germans in Italy. Hmm. And if you look at the record of the 442, the 442 and 556, which is the, which is the, uh, the uh, artillery battalion, uh, they're the most decorated battalion in the history of American military. These Japanese Americans uh, sacrificed their lives, and when they were coming back to the United States, were not even allowed to let their families come out of internment camp, even though they paid it in debt. Of the of the most important thing is giving your life to our country. Uh, 
So my background uh, working with our scout troop was supported by this 442 uh, organization. And they instilled into us some very, very deep values that you don't get today in, in regards to who you are, where you come from, your patrimony, the, the opportunities that are presented here in the United States. My grandparents, when they came here in 1906, built uh, in the Sacramento Valley, they built rice, rice uh, fields and inns and places for people to stay. And during World War II, that was all taken away from them and they were thrown into an internment camp. Had not my father been educated here in the United States, they would have left, this, left the camp destitute. So we value education as one of the most important things that anybody can get. And they could never take that away from you. So that is the. So we've always invested in everything that we're doing to help understand the world and educate not only us but our future children and our children that we have coming that will so, be coming in the so future. So Steve, one thing I'm curious about is you know you mentioned that there's a lot of values that you know uh, were instilled in you. How are those values um, kind of played into you know your business career? Like how has it helped you? You know, tell the audience a little bit about uh, your business career and some of the things you, you've you've done. Well, sure. And in, in, there's uh, being in Silicon Valley and starting off uh, with my ad agency. I sold my ad agency to a group of people before .com came on and basically retired. Um, I've always been fascinated about technologies and what they can do and how they can help people. And, and my area that I'm really interested in is in humanity, mm-hmm. how we can use technology to help humanity. So I've always been looking at technologies or converging marketplaces where we can create a new domain and be able to deliver things that will do those particular things. Mm. Reduce cost, overhead, reduce access to barrier to access, or give a giveaway for people to get involved in these things. So I've always been on a quest to build companies. I've had nine companies that I've started wow. up from scratch. Uh, six, I've crashed and burned. Of six of them, three of them I crashed and burned significantly, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, lost everything. And uh, six of them I have successful exits. I'm on, I'm on uh, program number 10 right now. So I'm wow. culminating all of that. Yeah, so it's a, it's been a nice journey. Uh, Silicon Valley has taught me a lot, but the most important thing I learned in business is really to understand and listen uh, to what's going on in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Be able to associate myself with people that have a vision, not an agenda, that are looking to to help humanity in better ways, in betterment ways, and not even health, but also socially, also environmentally. Mm-hmm. So I've always built companies and technologies that are geared to those domains. One of the companies that I got taken away from me, which is really sad, is a 1,000-mile equivalent energy system for compared to fuel systems. So you can mm-hmm. now deliver by harvesting materials in our environment that are harmful, turn those into a silicon material we, we call uh, hydrogen silicate, and allow that to power uh, fuel cells so that now I can harvest harmful materials such as fly ash and convert that to hydrogen silicate there for power fuel cells and fuel energy, which would give us a thousand mile per gallon equivalents. These are the things that we're interested in doing. What we're working on now is even more monumental. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Steve. And you have uh, quite an extensive background. And I like to get into the background because it really shows people like what kind of person you were in the past and how it led up to what you're doing right now. And so now I want to hear from Jonathan. Jonathan, you're yes. up. You know what? Just kind of like what kind of child were um, what kind of child were you? You know how did did it play into who you are right now? And just tell us about your professional experience. What kind of child was I? Well, I, I'll find the nearest couch. I'll lay down. Well, it all it all began way back when. Uh, no, I I th- I think you know it's funny. Um, I got a note. 
ironically, from a, an old friend named Brian O'Leary. He'll get a kick out of it when I just mentioned him here. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen Brian in probably a decade. Uh, he and I were wow. friends during my pre- previous life, previous work in the publishing business. Um, and uh, I, I work in emergency services and interoperability now. We can get into that. But um, he pinged me on LinkedIn the other day. It just kind of reminds you that, you know, you put stuff out into the world. You're never really sure who's going to see it. Right. Maybe somebody from way back in the day. Uh, and it's nice. It can reconnect to you. But he, he made a comment that um, once upon a time I had flustered some folks uh, by apparently questioning the established wisdom uh, of how things had always been done or something to that effect. And, and, and I think that really is, is kind of where I where I come in. Um, and that, at that time it was the publishing business. I've now done that in emergency services when it comes to, to data and tracking of, of information across people and spaces and times, uh, you know, and you look at things ranging from COVID to the substance use crises, um, to chronic care, to disaster preparedness. I mean, it all really is about, you know, do you know who's impacted and where are they and where do they need to go and who else needs to know about them? And the, the idea that in this country, and in fact, most of the world, that's still a radio and paper-based process. Um, I think that's stupid. <laughs> to, say, to say the least in 2021 um, and it's been like that for a long time so it, it kind of reminded me when I think about what my childhood was like and whether I was kind of destined to be an entrepreneur I come from a family of entrepreneurs um, in a variety of, of unsexy industries uh, mm. sewing machines and paper and light bulbs um, they're you know they're, they're not things that you, you think of as flashy and, and all that but they're really fundamental in a lot of ways um, you know, they form empowering technologies for something else. And so I think coming up through that, my mom was a, was a cancer nurse uh, in New York. Um, so uh, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, but, um, you know, got, got a lot of exposure to the, the medicine really early on and the impact of people, again, being a nurse, you know, it's really not just about the medicine, but about how the people, you uh, you know, survive and live and thrive uh, based on what's going on with them. Uh, Dad is a is a lawyer um, turned entrepreneur, so you know, kind of got a sense of all right. You know, what are the things that you need to do to be able to build a venture safely? Uh, incidentally, it's his birthday today, so happy birthday, Dad! I love you. Happy birthday, Dad! Happy birthday! <laughs> uh, we'll send him so, his video. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Andrew. Video tribute live to the world. Um, so I, I think, like I said, I think for me, it was really about. Uh, actually it's funny I went to business school at Carnegie Mellon my business partner there Um, and uh, here's my my ad for Carnegie Mellon Uh, founded at Carnegie Mellon University Um, and and I think I feel fortunate because I remember like four things from business school uh, 10 years later so I figure if I remember four I'm straight Uh, Mm -hmm. and and one of them is the concept of reframing um, and, and this came out of a marketing class and it was kind of the idea that, uh, you know, oftentimes when we think, we think about a problem, uh, especially, and there's been a lot of talk from some very big investors, um, like the note Kosla and of course, Clay Christensen talked about this in the, you know, in the framework of disruptive innovation. Um, if you have, if you have come up in a system, it's very hard to look differently at that system. Right, you, you kind of get the bad habits, um, and, and they may not be bad. They may be good habits, but they are what has always been done. Um, but in order to truly find areas for innovation, you need to be outside of it. 
Um, whether that's intellectually outside of it, physically outside of it, depending on what you're talking about, um, you know, but at least prepared to kind of break some eggshells, I guess. Um, and, and so that's really kind of what I was raised in, uh, was this concept of, you know, have respect for what came before, because you got there for a reason. People would use the analogy, of course, of standing on the shoulders of giants or whatever you want to call it. But I really think it's just about realizing that you didn't get here by accident. Um, but one of the things that they taught us in B-School, I've been thinking a lot about lately, um, literally first day of the entrepreneurship program, which, by the way, I don't think this is a great thing to teach people, but I do think it is effective in an interesting way. They said, um, if there's a huge opportunity with a lot of need, a lot of pain, a large market and a lot of money to be made, assume somebody's doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and I think on the one hand, of course, there's that very famous Andy Grove quote, um, only the paranoid survive, right? So thinking that you are going to go in and be the first to do something that no one else has thought of, that level of arrogance is likely to get you squashed. Um, but just because something has been done doesn't mean it can't be tweaked. It doesn't mean that there's not a different way of looking at it. That's where the reframing really came in. Um, and as an example, you know, I mentioned my, my first business was a publishing business. Um, I loved it. I mean, it was my first love. It's still my first love. It's really sad to see sort of what's going on with some forms of media these days. But uh, I'm a long-form journalist, and I still am. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I talk in 180 characters or something, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a long-form journalist. I mean, it, it, the, you know, Prince Demise has been largely over overstated for many moons, right? Um, but the... The, the thing was, so I started a, a, a magazine called Citizen Culture, and it had been described as a, a New Yorker for a new generation. Like, we were thrilled by it. Um, it was doing exactly what we wanted. The original mission actually was to open new voices to the market who weren't established, therefore couldn't get published. So how do you break in if you haven't already broken in? You know, very much similar to the, the venture model, right? I mean, you your funding if you have the experience how do you get the experience if you don't get the funding so those types of chicken and egg problems are really what fascinated me is they, they create this sort of institutional lockout um and i figured i could break it and i did um so we ended up publishing 86 authors for the first time i mean real real good stuff um and then it, they describe the publishing industry there's a sort of this mantra that in order to become a millionaire in the publishing business you have to start out with 10 um like it is it is not <laughs> an economically healthy mm. way you know, unless you've got enormous scale and reach and you know certainly for a for a new person it's really hard so i'm telling the story for a reason i promise so we published we published five issues we did really well we we sold out new york city on one of them you know we were in airports and barnes and noble and like really really cool stuff um and then we ran out of money basically like advertising this was this was uh at a time when advertising was changing, a lot of it was going oh, online. Yeah. And digital, and oh, yeah. this, was, this was around 2003, 2004. So it was sort of post, uh, uh, you know, bubble explosion. And, mm -hmm. and whatnot. So it was just a really weird economic market to be doing this in. And so we ran out of money. Uh, and, I, and I sat down with my team who were amazing at what they do. And I basically said, here's the situation. I got enough funds left for one more issue. And we can do that. Or we could go out in a blaze of glory and basically rip shit up and, and, and see what we can pull off. Mm -hmm. And ended up, so, you know, to a T, every person on my team said, of course, let's do the latter. I mean, why, why go out with a whisper when you go out with a, with a yell, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
And, and so we retooled. We basically went back kind of to the drawing board, took the same content, changed around some design concepts, kind of broke the, broke the uh, I don't say the broke the mold, but sort of created a new pattern uh, and ended up de uh, designing and publishing the world's first all digital print magazine. Um, mm -hmm. so Citizen Culture was the first digital magazine in the world. Uh, we actually, uh, at one point, uh, Bloomberg Business Week, I believe, had given that credit to somebody else, and then they issued a correction. Mm. And did it. So uh, wow. John Fine, as the reporter, did that. I was pretty excited. But I mean, we're talking about things like embedding. We were the first to embed a film trailer in a review article about the movie, so you can watch the trailer and then read the thing. And like, I had to at the time, I had to go to the movie studio to get permission to do that. Uh, you know, we, uh, I, one of my investors in my company now was actually a subscriber of ours at the time. And he sent me a note a couple of years ago saying, um, you were ahead of your time. Digital magazines look great on iPads. And I wrote back and said, screw you, dude. <laughs> Who wants to hear that they lost all their money, but you had a really good idea. Right. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, it, it really kind of taught me this idea that if you didn't, if, if, if you went in where the goal was not to just be a me too, right? Another mm -hmm. product or something. Like but it was really to say, look, I, I'm, I'm against a wall. Either the market is changing or the or running out of money or new regulation, right? Or COVID-19, take your pick. That idea of reframing. It's a, so like, uh, what is a magazine, right? Mm -hmm. a magazine, does a magazine have to be on paper? Can it be flippy, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, does it have to have uh you know just any attribute that you kind of take for granted right it really was this question of does it have to be that way um and we kind of asked the same thing in our business now uh you know when we look at patient records and, mm -hmm. and you know, excuse me my my thing's beeping here <laughs> all good you're a busy guy no no i want to turn off my my teams here it's it, operating in the background i don't want it to take a chance of being in your in your recording here. Uh, sorry about that. Okay. So, you know, when we, when we look at this concept of reframing, it's one thing to be respectful of where you came and to recognize that, you know, I wouldn't have been talking about digital magazines if there wasn't print magazines. I wouldn't have been talking about print magazines if there wasn't newspapers. You know, it, there's, a, there's a history there, right? But the idea of doing it just because you've always done it is death. Um, then your idea is dead, right? Progress is dead. Um, so uh, to me, it's really been about how can we cock the, the head 45 degrees, you know, and see around the corner kind of thing. And, and, and so we got into the same type of thing with, with EMS technologies where, um, for me, a pain point, a pain point is not an inconvenience. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. In order for me to innovate on something, I need to know that there is a, the juice is worth the squeeze. It has mm -hmm. to be. It's not, ah, I want everything to be faster and easier. You know why I don't do that? It's not because I don't want to make it convenient. It's because it's a slippery slope, right? It never ends. So, so I will find that if I can save you a minute, now you want me to save you two. Now you want me to save you four. Like, that's fine. But it, it sort of becomes de minimis after a while. Um, but I'll never forget, and I often refer to one of the first sets of conversations we had in Pittsburgh with EMS agencies that wanted to start to document their care, the care of their patient using their voice. Mm -hmm. This was 2009, 2010. So before a lot of the newer technologies on speech to text were even available. Um, and I remember wanting to understand why they cared about it. And, and people said, you know, 
it takes a long time to type or I'm not, I, I mean, I'm not an EMS because I'm a great typist, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, that's not why I mean this. If I was that, I'd be a journalist or whatever it is, you know, and there was the question of um, just making sure that things were correct and all of these things that kind of were working around the edges, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't compelling. It was important and valuable, but not compelling. And then this one team that worked in a very rough part of Pittsburgh spoke up and they said, I'll give you a use case. And it was as follows. They work in a town called Williamsburg, uh, 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 sorry, Wilkinsburg, uh, which is a, a fairly rough part, at least at the time, fairly rough part of, of Pittsburgh. And they themselves knew of people who had been attacked in the street while taking care of patients because the street value of the computer that was sitting next to them was like 1500 bucks. Mm. Right? And so they said, what we want to be able to do is lock our computer in the back of the truck so that we can feel safe taking care of the patient while still dictating what we're doing. So it's getting captured in real time and it can you know, go into the record and flow onto the hospital and do all things they need to do. And I said, that's a use case, right? You're not talking about convenience. You're talking about, can you get the job done? And, and so looking at this from, again, kind of looking around the corner, right? And see, like, if I can change my angle a little bit and reframe this reality, what can I do? And, and we took that to some pretty extreme ends, like enabling EMS data to land at the hospital before yeah. the ambulance does for the first time. Um, we were the first ones in the United States to do it. That's insane. We were the first ones to put a camera in a patient care record. When you go out to the scene of a crash, and you want to take a picture of the people who are injured or their injuries or their the scene or the car crash, if that doesn't go in the record itself, clearly there's a missed opportunity to communicate, right? It's worth a thousand words. What's video worth? Mm -hmm. Right? So it, it becomes a really interesting, like, how is this not being done? Yeah. Uh, and, and it really took somebody, I'm, an, I'm a technologist, I'm not a clinician. So I kind of mm -hmm. came in outside and said, what if we can tweak the view a little bit? Um, not rip up what they're doing, right? The crews are doing what they're doing. They're comfortable. They're trained. They know how to do it. But if you can add efficiency and you can more importantly give them a reason to have the efficiency, then you can also translate that efficiency into dollars and time right? and, and reduce the pain point. And so all of a sudden you can not only be delivering a feature, but you can be building a business. Uh, and so to me, it's, it's all been about trying to find those angles that folks on the inside kind of take for granted mm -hmm. or, or they think, well, this is going to be so hard to solve that I can't do it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of what got me here. And I can really tie back <laughs> to that early sense of, you know, what if you, what if you step outside of lawyering or step outside of mm -hmm. medicine, bring the same human connection, the same diligence level, mm -hmm. but apply it to these other problems of uh, where, where you, you get a perspective that, you know, you know, you're, Steve, you were just talking about the Chinese and Japanese uh, uh, intermarriage and whatnot. It's ironic because some of the publishing work that I did was about interfaith and interracial marriages uh, mm -hmm. and same-sex marriages. And and it, it's just people talk about diversity as a buzzword. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe here's your pull quote, Fong, for the for the podcast. But, you know, people talk about, about diversity as a buzzword. What I don't think they often realize is genetic diversity of thought. Mm -hmm. uh, genetic diversity of thought. 
makes a company and a population extremely resilient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the ability to say, if I'm going down this road and that road's going to bend, if everything that I know is on that road, I'm going to have a problem. Yeah. Uh, the ability to bend around it, the ability to hybridize your understanding with new things uh, allows you to deal with black swans and COVID and, you know, uh, and running out of money and sort of figuring out ways to make it work. Yeah, I think that's huge. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I really like that reframing concept, you know, just respecting and paying homage to the past, but also doing things in a different way to improve things. Um, So I really appreciate you sharing that. Now, um, you know, uh, one thing you also mentioned, Jonathan, is like you came from a background of some entrepreneurs in your family, you know, and I'm just fascinated with just how much our background has an impact in, in who we become and what we do. You know, for example, you know, my, uh, my parents, my mom um, was, a, uh, was a small business owner. So she actually owned a, uh, a nail shop. So like a nail technician shop where, you know, she paints people's nails. And so she was very entrepreneurial. Uh, my dad never owned a business, but he always wanted to. But, you know, every time he talked about a business idea, it's kind of funny because like, you know, her side of the family would shoot down the ideas saying that it was too risky. Right. And so he never started a business. Um, and he, but he would always share those ideas with me. And so I feel like that kind of rubbed off on me personally. And so, um, here I am, you know, uh, uh, running a business, but also in college, that's what, that was my first business experience running in a, a painting business. Nice. And so I grew that painting business in college to about 17, you know, painters, seven different managers. So that was a great learning experience. And then relating back to Steve, you know, Steve, you shared that one of the things you've learned in business is doing things for good, you know, changing humanity, improving humanity through your business. And so I really resonate with that. Um, so one thing I'm curious about from you guys, and we can go around again, is um, the power of building a brand, you know, because yeah, it's great. A product is great. If you have a great product, that's awesome. But if nobody knows about it, then what good, <laughs> what good can it do? Man. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so Steve, I mean, you've ran, you said nine businesses, three of them failed, six succeeded. What have you learned about building a brand and what are you doing right now to build, you know, Gemini DT in, in terms of branding? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, brand, brand is uh, uh, comprised of two things image and identity okay identity is like the logo above my head you see that's that's those are the words that identify my company or my offering right but the most important thing about brand and image is the image what people think of you okay so image and identity work together identity tells me the name of the company but image is when i say a particular project let's say q-tips you have a good idea what that means to you specifically. What's that impression? How's that impression? Or if I say Roundup, that's the brand, but the image that presents in your mind is based on your context of what you understand around the world around you and how you receive that information to make, a, make a, an impression on what that impression means. So understanding these two things work in conjunction with each other are the key to build a strong brand. And in the area of area of, that I've been involved in, specifically in areas of disruption or converging spaces together, converging technologies together, that gives you a new opportunity where you can make your brand synonymous with an action, like a Q-tip, 
a Q-tip brand, but you know mm -hmm. it's synonymous. I'm not going to say a cotton swab. Mm -hmm. A Xerox is not a, it's a photocopy, but it's a Xerox. Mm -hmm. So in the case of when you're building brand, when you're building a, a new market area, especially when you're doing as an entrepreneur, you know, the basic premises of an entrepreneur, you see a problem, you want to solve it. So then you approach it from your standpoint. Am I converging technologies? Am I, what am I doing to solve that problem? Mm -hmm. And in the case of that, when I build a company that does that, whether it's sustainable innovation, basically making things better, or disruption, basically changing the paradigm, those are opportunities from branding that you only exist in those two domains. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm like, like uh, what Jonas is doing for MetaView, right? That changes the entire ecosystem and it's a productivity solution that gives a whole new meaning to what it means to integrate all these different things together, therefore creating a white space or a new field and where they can plant their flag, which is their identity, MetaView, in this context, but then they build around all the ways people understand how their brand is, how you interact with that brand. Is it through this or through that media, through this social engagement, through this customer base? All these things culminate into what people think about you. So branding is very important when you're looking at how you want to position your company, because at the end of the day, you're, you're positioning your company, obviously, as an entrepreneur to make some money, of course, and to solve some significant problems. But at the end of the day, when you build a brand, that's an intrinsic investment and in value into your company. If you're like a me too, me too, or you're like a need to, or, or, or nice to have, well, those are all part of the crowd, hard mm -hmm. to differentiate yourself. But when you become a need to have, then that changes the ballgame. Now you can leverage things that your need to have illustrates and what problems you're solving. And therefore, leveraging these things into the media or to your customer base, whichever they will be and understanding who you are and what they should be thinking about you. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent where your brand gets pervasive enough or starts reaching what we call viral aspects, uh, now you can start associating as a brand value, an opportunity for the first time as a marketer actually to build a brand that can define a adjective mm -hmm. or an action, right? Or, or a verb, like for example, Google, it's, it's, it's an obvious one. You know, everybody mm -hmm. says, I don't look at a search engine, go Google something. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a disruption in the paradigm where they planted their flag as their name, but then they associated that so that people start adding to this in their vernacular as an action. So part of the challenges of building a brand is to understand how to use that technology that you're using to create a new white space to illustrate what that brand, what that value is in the identity, identifying that white space. But then adding to it behind it all the ways you support that white space by building uh, uh, ways people understand you through, through uh, associations, through PR, through social media, and all the above to get your audience in place so that they start understanding what you're about versus mm -hmm. identifying your brand itself. So there's a, the, the brand building is one of the most crucial things as an entrepreneur. When you want to build value about your company, you'll always have that in the back of your mind. Am I, what is my mission and what I'm trying to solve? I want to do everything in my power as I'm communicating this to my audience or out to the world, these value propositions. So people start associating my name with those value propositions. So that's the bottom line of brand wow. is to get that in place. That is awesome. I love that. And, um, and one thing that, um, I can really resonate with is when it becomes so viral that it becomes a verb, you know, it becomes an adjective that people use. 
That's and right. so, you that's know, right. um, that, that's something that I think just so fascinating, but you know, a lot of people, they try to, they think it's overnight. You know, some people think it's overnight, but I mean, yeah. how long has it take, taken Google to really make it an adjective, you know? <laughs> so um, I'm right there with you, Jonathan, what about you? What, what are some things you are doing right now or have done to really build your, your brand? Okay. So I want to do something kind of fun here. Um, are you able to let me share my screen? Yeah. Okay, uh, and do me a favor, t turn it, or I'll, I can try to do it on my side such that I can share audio. So let me know when you're ready. Okay. Okay. There you uh, go. I see your. All right. So I'm going to play you seriously. I've never done this before. And I've talked about it, but this is actually what pretty much taught me everything I know about marketing. Hmm. No joke. Ready? All right. Let's do it. It's two minutes long. So for your audience, you're going to get two minutes to watch this thing. This and is not planned, folks. We can this talk about it. Tell me if you can hear the sound. I'm going to pause it. You hear the sound? Yeah. Yep. All right. Have you seen this movie? Muppets Take Manhattan? Yep. Nope. Okay, yep, Steve, you know where this is going. I'm not going to say anything. All right. Sounds good. This is, this is the heart and soul of my knowledge as a marketer. Forget business school. Forget other degrees. It's all about the Muppets. What? Turn it down a little bit there, Jonathan. Get the overload here. Better? Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Uh, excuse me. Yes? I'm looking for the Gordon Employment Agency. That's one floor down. Oh, I see. Thank you. Wait a minute. Uh, hold it. Uh, what's your name? Um, uh, Phil. Uh, Philip. Philip, Phil. Philip, Phil. Catchy name. Phil, I'm Bill, and this is Gil. Phil, I'm Gil, and this is Jill. Phil, I'm Jill. You know Gil and Bill. Ah, pleased to meet you. Would you step into our office? You see, we're looking for the opinion of the common ordinary frog on the street. Oh. You see, Phil, we're in the ad game. Oh. Oh, what do you advertise? Potion Breeze Soap? Hmm, I never heard of that. We know. we know. The truth is, Phil, our jobs are on the line. Oh, here, sit down. Oh, yes. Hmm. We've been working all night on a new slogan. Tell us if you like it. Uh, Ocean Breeze Soap. For people who don't want to stink. Hmm. What do you think? Be frank, Phil. I don't like it. You don't? Oh. Oh. Well, how about Ocean Breeze Soap? It's just like taking an ocean cruise, only there's no boat and you don't actually go anywhere. Seems a bit long. Oh. Have you tried something simple like... Ocean Breeze soap will get you clean. Mm -hmm. uh, wait a minute. Wait just a second. You mean just say what the product does? Well, no one's ever tried that. Oh. Well, it's, it's, it's crazy. Oh, it's nuts. We, we love, love it. it. Oh, oh, thank you, yes, Phil. If we could ever do something for you, let us know. Mm. <laughs> anyway, we get it. We get <laughs> I think you get the gist. Oh, let me go yeah. back to the other way or else. Stop the share. Right? <laughs> uh, just say what the product does. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think, Steve, everything that you said, I, I could not have said better. Um, the, the orientation of, of the identity and the mission and, and, and what sort of how you want to be thought of and associated is, is really so 
uh, so perfectly encapsulated. Um, I think the, the part that I find terribly missing from particularly the Silicon Valley ecosystem, I had a really interesting experience. The guy named Guy Kawasaki, uh, yeah. you know, probably heard of French. Yep. And, yep. and this was this was a number of years ago. We had just just moved out to California from Pittsburgh and, and kind of setting up shop here. And he was part of the 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 community of founder, investor, advisors, and whatnot. Of course, who were talking about failing fast, right? Get out into the market, right? Why combinate or build something that people want, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and and he was talking at this particular lecture about minimum viable product. Uh, and I work in healthcare, right? So minimum viable product is actually a really high bar, right? And we like to say sort of in shorthand, you can't put a beta in the back of an ambulance, right? People can get hurt. Uh, so it, it, it creates a, a bit of a different dynamic where you've got to go really far down the process. And so in, in giving this discussion about minimum viable product, I essentially asked him, but if your product's not done, how can you give it to them to test, right? Or, or, to, or to deploy and find out if it's going to work. And his answer, which I thought was very prescient even at the time, was if you don't give it to them to test, how are you going to know when it's done, <laughs> right? So, so there's this, this really interesting question of did you ask your users, right? Do you listen to, your, to the people who are talking to you? And of course, the, the very well-known speaker, Simon Sinek, uh, just had a, a video clip going out a couple weeks ago that kind of made the rounds uh, that says something that I've said for years as a journalist, right? My superpower, if I have one, is that I ask a ton of questions and I listen really carefully, mm -hmm. uh, right? That, that's what journalists do. And yeah. I've, I've often phrased it when it comes to product development is I go in assuming I'm an idiot because I am an idiot. Uh, I'm not the user, right? I'm not the person who's going to end up telling me everything I need to know. I have some knowledge about other things. I have knowledge about how to build a technology system and a company and get it out into the world and all that. But when it comes to actually doing the job, I'm an idiot, right? And, and I need to ask them to tell me what they need. And then it's my job to listen and not assume I know everything. When it comes to some fundamental things like compliance, all right, it's kind of a binary question, right? It's not really a matter of opinion. You either are compliant or you're not. Um, okay, but when it comes to, is this going to help? Is it going to make your job better? Is it going to make your patient's life better? Is it going to facilitate your workflow? If I go in thinking I know anything about that, by the time I put my foot in the field, I'm already dead, right? I mean, because the, the puck has moved. Um, and of course, that leads to one of those, you know, very well-known analogies, like I'm not building for where the puck is, I'm building for where it's going, right? But how do you know where it's going, aside from, you know, kind of guessing, unless you ask people who are doing it, I got to tell you what they need, and then do that, so that by the time they're ready, um, I was quoted in the uh, San Francisco Chronicle a couple of years ago, uh, talking about health technology and entrepreneurship, and, you know, as you know, guys know, when you talk to a journalist, uh, everything's on record, right? <laughs> you, have yeah. no, you know what part of the quote they're going to use. And <laughs> yeah, or they'll twist. <laughs> what was that? Uh, or they'll twist. They'll take things yeah, out of context. Wants, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you throw the world out there, and then you hope and pray that by the time it makes it into whatever it's making, it doesn't make it sound like a moron. Uh, and, and so this reporter actually did a fantastic job, I, I thought, because the quote that they pulled 
was my definition of entrepreneurship, which I think jives very much with what Steve said about branding, is finding a way to survive until the market wants what you have to offer, right? Mm -hmm. Find a way to survive until the market wants what you have to offer. You have to be confident in your vision enough to say, I think I'm going in the right direction. I've reframed this and I see something that the world doesn't see. And of course, the arrogance of the entrepreneurs to think that we're right, right? Um, something can oh, that's, he went off, that's a whole picture? Oh, okay. There we go. Um, so, right, the the arrogance of the entrepreneur is to, is to believe that you that you're onto something. Mm -hmm. um, but what Simon Sinek says, you know, is that the only way you're really going to know is to ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And and there is a dose of humility that I think branding and marketing in general requires to know whether it's working or not. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've as I've been doing some changes to our business and engaging social media much more and whatnot. Um, another word, of course, comes to mind a lot is authenticity, which I think is worth talking about in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, and especially the idea that what you're putting out there in the world isn't always going to work, yep. right? Because if it's so polished and so focus grouped and everything, then then sometimes it's going to just look manufactured and fake. And mm -hmm. that's not what people want to hear, especially mm -hmm. when they spend long hours doing hard work. Um, but, but I do think that the idea of kind of throwing um, – uh, throwing away the idea that you know everything mm -hmm. right? and basically saying, tell me what I don't know, mm -hmm. ask a lot of, ask a lot of questions and then be ready to have your ego checked mm -hmm. to find out that you didn't, you either, you got it wrong, you missed it entirely. Um, or, you know, maybe there was something that you thought was really small, turns out to be really big or vice versa, right? You were spending all your work on this feature that turns out to be a non-issue, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you come in with the perspective that you have, your brand gets handed to you. Your yep. brand is that you think you know something, mm -hmm. right? What I have found, and I think it was the secret of whatever success I've had currently and in the past, is that I assume I know nothing, right? And so... My my, uh, it's my job to listen, and it's my job to build a community of engaged partners, partner clients. I I do not have customers, by the way. My mm. business, Beyond Lucy Technologies, has zero customers. Mm. We have partner clients, mm -hmm. and plenty of them, right? But that distinction, I think, is a huge cultural one for our company. Right? I, I, the idea, I, if you tell me you need a feature, it is my job to figure out how I can get it to you. Yeah. Now, I don't want to give you something that's going to cause you a downstream harm, right? So you may, if, if I do this thing and now you have a compliance problem, I haven't done you any good, right? But, but if I can find a way to get you what you need, there's an added benefit beyond the business transaction is that you as a partner client feel a stake in, in the win, right? It's, it's part of a community effort. And so it's, it's not customer vendor in fact i, I say mm -hmm. all the time i have literally have slides to say if you're looking for a vendor i'm not your guy yeah uh, but uh, i'm not going to do that this is not a transactional business it's a relationship yeah. right and so to the degree that you help me make my tech better in exchange i give you tech that is now better mm -hmm. and, and, and then and then i take that to the next agency over and they get all the benefits of your knowledge Plus, how we actually, you know, act, uh, actualized it, and then they say, "Wow, you're willing to listen to those guys. We've got ideas too," mm -hmm. and so they tell us their ideas, and then we build those in. 
It, it's not a crowdsource. It's just a listening to the people who ultimately are impacted and saying, you told me what you need. So I'm going to build that. Then you're going to tell your neighbors that they now have a partner that cares about them. Mm -hmm. So they're going to raise their hand, want to tell that person, because as we all know, right, if, if you love the experience, you tell 10 people. If you hate the experience, you tell 100. Yep. Right? Marketing 101, right? So the view here was if instead of focusing on winning everybody, I have, I have their other colleagues in our industry whose focus is to win everybody. Mm. And they want the big and the small, the sophisticated, the unsophisticated, the rich and the poor. I, I don't care. Mm. I, I only want the smart ones, mm. right? I don't need to be everywhere. I just need the best. If you are the best at what you do and you want to be the best at what you do and you want to be recognized for being the best at what you do, I know that in your community, others are going to be looking to you, right? Because everybody has those early adopters and the leaders and the, the thought leaders and, and so on in their community. And so if we go to those folks, they've already done the talking to their neighbors. Their neighbors have complained about the status quo. They have their own concepts of where things can go. By the way, this does not only apply clearly in emergency services, right? Mm -hmm. This applies to everything from medicine, like Steve is doing, to you know, building phones and widgets, right? And at the end of the day, there are there are the folks who are the laggards. There are the folks the early adopters. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the folks of the early adopters, they've already thought about this. Right. They want to be they want to flex their imagination and the brand. If if your brand becomes someone who cares. That carries far more than you're somebody who is cheaper. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the, the money works itself out. But at the end of the day, I think that goes back to that question of authenticity. Right. What are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish? And, and, and how often do you hear people say, if your only goal is to make money, entrepreneurship is not it. You, you can make plenty of money, right? There's plenty of money to be made. There's gods. But you, like you said, it's going to take 10 years to be an overnight success. Mm -hmm. 10 years if you're lucky. Uh, and so I think it, you, you've got to have some mission. And I know it sounds so hokey, but you've got to have the fire because some of those days are going to be long and they're going to suck. And you're going to have days that are uh, great, right? And you make those days the mountains, and then you take the days when you lost the deal or somebody undercut you or some corruption in the market or whatever it is, and those ones get filed away in the dustbin. Uh, and, and so I think, to me, what Steve talked about as far as the brand and, and the authenticity and the identity, even getting to the verb, right? Mm -hmm. The question of, did I say what I was going to do? Did I do that thing? And then I did, did I bring you along for the ride? And if that's the case, then you're, you will never be a commodity. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's kind of a long answer to a pretty powerful question. Yeah, no. Um, one thing that really resonated with me, Jonathan, is what you said about listening, you know, listening to um, people and seeing what they want. Um, what are some of their pain points? What do they need? And how can you deliver on that? And I feel like a lot of um, uh, business owners, they do the top-down approach. Right. They think what the, they know, what the uh, the people need. And so they craft a message that they think right. will work and it ends up being just vanilla. It's the same thing. Right. That's right. Instead, you should take a bottom up approach where you go into the trenches and you listen. And so one of the things I actually do for some of exactly. um, our clients. So I have this client, uh, their company is called Foodum. It's pretty disruptive. Um, think of it as an in-home chef 
service. So they go to your house and they, um, they uh, you know, make your meals for you. I think I uh, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, Renetta, she's really awesome. She's the CEO. Uh, shout out to Renetta if you're listening. But um, so we're doing their branding for them. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're going into Facebook groups. And so um, one of their uh, ideal customers are moms, mothers who are just so busy. They don't have time, right? Yeah, they don't have time. They, they need someone to cook for them. And so we're joining these local mom groups, San Francisco moms, you know, <laughs> Danville moms, and we're just listening and see what they're saying, right? How do they communicate with each other? What do they need? And how can we tailor that brand message to the, to the customers? And so you're seeing a lot of content like, you know, um, tips to save time, uh, time if you're a mom, or some healthy snacks for your children, easy to make cuisines that you can make in like 15 minutes, things like that. So that way we're grabbing the attention of those moms and adding value to them. And so um, I really believe in uh, the things that you, you mentioned, Steve, and also you, Jonathan, about listening and figuring, figuring out what people want. And so we got a couple of minutes. And um, I guess the last question I want to end with um, and, you know, try to keep it to a few minutes so that way um, we can stay on time. But um, I know that the Silicon Valley is a place that a lot of people see as a dream, right? People uh, look at these big companies, these big unicorns, <laughs> you know, like your Ubers, your Googles, your Facebooks. And they think it's so easy because, you know, a lot of the success stories are from there. But I think there's a hard reality that people need to know because when you have these um, expectations that things are going to be easy and then they don't, uh, that they're not easy, that's when it causes a lot of stress and in some cases, unhappiness and depression. And so, um, Steve, I want to hear from you first. You know, like, what are some realities that entrepreneurs need to know? You know, maybe they, they just started their business or maybe they've been a few years in business, but they still have this unrealistic expectation of, you know, being a unicorn or being one of those big companies. Uh, Steve, I uh, can't hear you for some reason. Oh, I was, I was, okay. I was some noise out. Was, yeah, first thing they need, to, they, they need to check their ego, number one. Humility is the most important thing. Uh, when you get to the point where, you know, you think you know everything uh, and you just basically cut yourself off from the rest of the world, number one, even at varying degrees of lesser or lesser that. So part of being a successful entrepreneur is understanding that there's a challenge that you want to solve, but understanding very well that you're providing a service to solve that problem or a solution. These are all mentality problem issues in the area of psychographics. When you're talking about memory, we talk, used to talk about A-type personalities and B-type personalities. Well, A-type personality is, you know, you're, you're, you're me first kind of person. Mm -hmm. Well, a D person is, uh, they're not satisfied until everybody else they're helping is satisfied. Mm -hmm. So there's a level of humility you need to put into place, first of all, as an entrepreneur. Of course, you know you're going to be – you're solving a challenge. You're, you're, you're going to disrupt the world. You're going to create the next unicorn, right? But humility gets you to the point where, well, maybe that's not the right unicorn or understanding that. But you need to listen and understand and really bow to what you're trying to serve and how you're trying to, what you're trying to solve. At the end of the day, by bringing solutions to the market, no matter whether you're in Silicon Valley or, or anywhere else around the world, you're trying to serve some part of our population with a solution. 
solutions are requiring that you understand their need. And by understanding their need, you have to be humble. Mm. And if by, by doing so, it lets you allow you to put your ears on and listen in the right context. Mm-hmm. Not listen to why you should buy my product or try to coerce you that you're thinking wrong and you should be looking in our domain. Mm-hmm. No, because uh, people change on a regular basis, but the market shifts. And as we move through the market, by enabling you to understand what the challenges are that these people are having, by literally getting on the ground and saying, okay, I see what your challenge is. Let me see if I can understand that challenge. Let me understand where you see there's, a, there's an opportunity. And then take those into consideration in formulating your, your go-to-market strategies. Mm-hmm. The positioning of your product is always crucial when you're able to serve versus to propagate to or to, to tell people what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, is, it is not taught in school. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a level of, of, of understanding in the business world, you know, I'm going to get a bottom line. I'm going to product is profitability. I'm going to market. I'm going to conquer these guys and I'll knock out my competition. At the end of the day, you have customers, mm-hmm. whether they're client-based, strategic partners, or actual customers in the field. You need to bring yourself down to their level. And by mm-hmm. doing so, uh, brings a level through your entire organization. And as you lead your organization, you're going to find that by bringing this from the top down, as far as an entrepreneur or leader of your company, it instills the same values throughout your, t- your entire organization. And anytime anyone, whether it's your population, your PR, your outside world, or whoever, meets anyone in your corporation, part of the job as being the leader of your organization is to instill these values and put this inside of your, 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 your ecosystem of understanding and how people work with everybody else. And mm-hmm. that's a, a very crucial part of being entrepreneurial because stuff happens. And mm-hmm. on top of that, you don't know what the guys in the next lab are working on. You have mm-hmm. no idea. They may be in the same thing because at the end of the day, ideas aren't unique in a sense that everybody sees a challenge. Mm-hmm. They're approaching it from different directions, but there is, everybody's trying to surmount that challenge. Mm-hmm. So you're not the only, if you get past being, I'm the only one that came up with this idea as Jonathan illustrated, mm-hmm. illustrated and really bring yourself down to what is, the most, you know, what are your, what are the values you're trying to instill in your organization, but also how you could understand and how to serve. And that's what building business is all about is serving your market. And it doesn't matter what that market is. I love that. That is awesome, Steve. And um, Jonathan, what about you? What are just kind of like some realities that new entrepreneurs uh, need to know? So I, I'm going to do what I said before a little bit and stand on the shoulders of giants or something. Um, first of all, uh, one of the other takeaways that I had from B-School, uh, twice as long and twice as much. Uh, and I wish they told us that at the beginning of the entrepreneurship program, not at the end. <laughs> twice as long and twice as much. Uh, I, I think So I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, I grew up in Hollywood. Right. I think what you described, Fong, is – a a very compelling problem that places like LA have to suffer, right? I mean, you come out there, you think you're going to have a smile and a pretty face and maybe some talent and you just get discovered off the street and it's not quite like that. Uh, And next thing you know, it's been 10, 15, 20 years, you're working at whatever job you got to sustain you and you're still there and you still haven't got discovered and, you know, kind of eats away at your soul a little bit. Um, So I think, you know, to Steve's point, check your ego is, is a big part of it. I think realizing that, you know, knowing what you're getting into um, and that there's a reason why some of us refer to 
uh, entrepreneurship as a mental def defect of some kind. Um, but look, I love my job. Uh, I love my job every day. I just like I love my family every day. There are some days and you're not happy with your family, but in general, on balance, it, you know, it, it, it all ends up hopefully on the upside. Um, so I, I, a couple of years ago, I got asked uh, who my favorite Bay Area company was, startup particularly, other than my own. Uh, and I have a specific answer. It's a company called Cellscope. Um, their CEO, uh, Eric Douglas, a former CEO, uh, but he sold the company. Uh, but uh, Cellscope built one of those businesses that I just, when I looked at it, it's like, why didn't I think of that? You know, that's, yeah. it's an amazing organization and very nimble and, and very humble. And they did it right uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, and like every company, they didn't do everything right. But on balance, again, they had a, a, a net positive result and people are happy. They made a lot of impact and it was great. And so I was talking to Eric. I hadn't seen him for a while. We got together probably around March-ish sort of to re reconvene as there was a, a, a slight dip in the COVID disaster mm -hmm. for a minute. Um, and, and we were talking about fundraising and, and this process of what, again, people think they're going to come out here and the money flows on trees and, uh, you know, again, it's just like it is in the books, right? Or yeah. on TV, you show up, you meet somebody at a bar, and then next thing you know, you've got a term sheet. And yeah, nonsense. Um, and so we, we were talking about that dynamic. And what, it, what he described to me, which I thought was, again, from him, particularly given all he'd done that I admire, was really quite compelling, is that you need to ask yourself, first of all, why you want to go the path, mm -hmm. right? And I'm not just talking about the mission. I'm talking about doing entrepreneurship as like fundraising and going out and bringing other cooks in the kitchen uh, you know, that marriage analogy I, it is not a joke when people say that many, many uh, uh, entrepreneurs are married to their investors longer than they are to their spouses. Right. That's a that's a real thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I and mean, you can be talking about marriages lasting three to five years and uh, investor relationships marrying lasting 10 years or more, depending on the life, life cycle of the company. So that's real. So you got to ask yourself if it's, you know, if, you're, if it's worth it. Um, are you bringing on the right people is, you know, do you value your ability to be flexible, for example, or do you really, are you content with sort of hitching your ride to someone else's rail? And I'm not talking about their horse. I'm talking about you're on a train rail and this thing's going to go for hundreds of miles. Right. Um, so I think that's an apt analogy to kind of ask yourself, but the flip side of it is what he suggested. This is what Eric told me. said, if you go further, Right. And I have had some wonderful investors and friends like Lisa Sunin, amazing entrepreneur and investor in her own right, who basically said, go as far as you absolutely can before you need that jet fuel. Right. And 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 the reason is because what you trade for not taking money or as much money or money as early is optionality. Right. And so you get the flexibility to, again, bend a little bit I, again los angeles so mm -hmm. i use the analogy of the palm tree right um if you are a giant sequoia in a storm you will break <laughs> um i mean maybe that's a 
wrong analogy because they're pretty strong. But <laughs> if you're anything other than a giant sequoia, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's a fair point as you talk about Google, right? I mean, if you get to a certain size, you can pretty much weather any storm. Uh, but if you're, you know, I'm looking out my window here and I see, you know, a beautiful little elm tree or something. And if there's a strong enough headwind, that thing will come flying over. Mm-hmm. And especially as it gets bigger and it needs more resources and it, you know, whatever, right? Um, but a palm tree bends and then straightens back up, right? And it gets a little bit without without teetering over. And so one of the things that Eric helped me understand was that if you raise $10 million, $100 million, a billion dollars, and you're going to have any percentage left in your company, the, the, the pool of acquirers or exits or, you know, IPO, whatever, they there is such a small universe at that point of of positive outcomes for your business because you've sort of painted yourself into a corner, right? Whereas if you own 5% of, of the business and you've raised a hundred million dollars, that's cool, but let's do some math there. That's right, a $5 million exit, right? Because you've been diluted down really, really far. But if you've only raised $10 million, right? You still own, to, to, to be able to get that same 5 million where you own 50% of the business, there's a whole lot of more people who can afford to buy you at a 10 million after a $10 million raise than a hundred million dollar raise, right? Mm-hmm. So the the your ability to then shop around your value and possibly make more than your five million dollars goes up because you can have more competition in that marketplace. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a simple supply-demand calculation, but a lot of people don't think of it that way. Um, again, as a journalist, I've been very disheartened at the amount of focus on the top line valuation number. Right, you're a you're a unicorn. Oh, <laughs> so, I mean, if it's an inside round, there's a, a company that a lot of people are have, were talking about last year that a certain very large venture firm invested in. I'm sure you know who I'm thinking of. That came out of the gate at a billion dollars of valuation with zero dollars in revenue. A couple months later, four billion dollars in valuation, zero dollars in revenue. Right, but it turns out the same people invested both times. Right, so that's a moral hazard by definition. Is it inside or out? I mean, I say I'm worth a trillion dollars, but I'm not, you know, doesn't mean I'm Apple. So, you know, buyer beware a little bit when it comes to the hype around this stuff because nobody sees the terms, right? I have a friend of mine who raised, uh, I think it was a million dollars, something like that, and ended up getting it given to her in $25,000 monthly increments. Seriously, that was the hedge from the investor. They were like, well, we'll, we'll commit to a million dollars but you basically have to earn it every month. I said, that's not an investment. That's an allowance. <laughs> and, 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 and so the point is, it doesn't matter. She needed to do it. So she did it. And that was her decision. And it is what it is. But you've got to be able to say, like, I don't know what the terms are. What are the clawback provisions? What are the investor protections? Is everybody going to be out if you miss your number by 5%? Well, then COVID happens and now everybody's out. Like, we, we don't know. So there's a lot of opacity. That's a good word. Look at that. That's a good mm-hmm. word. But there's a lot of opacity in these in the in these transactions, and people forget that private companies are not public, right? Public companies aren't necessarily all that honest all the time either. But certainly in the private market, there's moral hazard, and and so again, just like Hollywood, you know, you don't just show up and win. Sometimes you do. There are some exceptions to everything, right? But in general. It's a long burn. It's a long commitment, and, and you know, people think that being Mark Zuckerberg is so great. Yeah, look, I, I'm sure a lot of people would love to have his money, but the guy can't leave his room without somebody commenting on it, right? I mean, it's the same thing with celebrity culture in LA. 
there's a there's a downside to that. There's a, the ledger balances. So to the degree that you know, you got to ask yourself if you're in your 20s and your first act is Facebook, what are you going to do for the rest of your days? Um, you know, and, and it's great if you can spend all that time giving away your money, but you know, that that's one avenue. There's a lot of people who look at this and say, I'm going to have a long life and I want to make sure that I get up every day and I'm excited about what I do. I make an impact on what I do. I don't have people picking at my every thought. Um, you know, privacy, especially with family, if you want to have a family life is to be valued. Um, so I think, I think they need to think about the deal that they're making when they say, I want to go be an entrepreneur, a, a tech company CEO. Um, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary. I and mean, I love my job. Again, you know, mm -hmm. I, wear, I wear my brand. Uh, mm -hmm. I try to live that authentic life. Uh, but part of that is also realizing that if any of your any of your listeners wants to be CEO, I can be paid in coffee. <laughs> I, take, I take lunch tickets. Um, look, it's a hard job, um, mm -hmm. and you know, dealing with with lots of different dimensions that you didn't expect. If you came in wanting to build cool tech, and next thing you know, you're dealing with employment law. Right? Mm -hmm. That's not what you wanted to do, but it's part of the gig. Um, so I really think it's about going in eyes wide open and understanding there's a lot of layers to it, but if the juice is worth the squeeze, then, you know, just like they say, you don't have a job. Um, mm -hmm. you know? And and I love what I do. Steve clearly loves what he does. I think entrepreneurship provides you with a significant hedge against the change in the world because you are truly in control of at least a large portion of your destiny. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the market will have its say. Uh, but if you can be that palm tree, then, you know, come what may, you can you can usually find a way to stay upright. How's that for a last point? Yeah, that is a great way to end. And so um, our time is up. I just want to thank Steve, Jonathan for hopping on and just sharing your knowledge and wisdom to the audience. And, um, and uh, I, I think it's so fascinating that you guys live in the same neighborhood, even though you don't know each other. It just now happened we do. like now, yeah, now you do, right? Here. So um, uh, everybody, I hope you took some notes. I hope you really got value from this. Uh, One last point. Yeah, go for it. Just evidence. There is life in the East Bay. <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> it's, it's right behind Jonathan. And, um, and yeah, feel free to reach out to any of us. You know, if you have any questions, I'm sure we're, um, you guys are very open to you know, answering questions if someone Absolutely. needs help. Um, but other than that, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And I will see you in the next episode. Yeah, I see you. Yes, if anybody wants my email is under my picture. If anyone wants to reach out, my picture, my email is under the picture here. Uh, pretty easy to find and always happy to talk about uh, all these things. Awesome. And then actually, uh, since we're on this topic, Steve and Jonathan, uh, where else could people find you? You know, I know, um, Jonathan, you put your, uh, uh, your email. How about LinkedIn? You know, t tell people where, uh, tell them where. They yeah, can you find can you. find me. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, I, Twitter. Yeah. All the usual yeah. Uh, LinkedIn is where, where you can find me the best. Uh, uh, the social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, um, they're okay. But for business, I think uh, LinkedIn seems to be the best. I was one of the original people on LinkedIn. So I have a lot of investment in that, 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 that platform. That's awesome. Sweet. Yeah. Thanks, Juan. All right. Of course.